Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that selects its topics by using a mutant algorithm. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey Corey. In August, the use of the algorithm to produce GCSE and A-level results to set grades was incredibly controversial and bungled and daft, but that's not the only area of public policy in the UK and across the world that's set by algorithm. So we're going to have a look at some examples of algorithms that set public policy, some examples of algorithms on social media apps as well, and think about what their wider implications are. Steve, the algorithm I have for this episode says to me to define what an algorithm is. So do you want to do that? Sure thing. An algorithm is essentially just a process or a set of rules which are followed. Now that this can be in calculations or some other form of problem solving operation. Normally this is done by a computer, but you can utilize an algorithm for manual work as well. But in essence, it's just a series of rules which interpret data and spit out at the end a result. And these, as you say, often used by a computer and often they're being used more and more in public policy to replace what I suppose are seen as more subjective judgments by individuals and you provide a bit of set and rigor to the process. So Cathy O'Neill has written a book which is called Weapons of Math Destruction. You see what they did there? I do, I do see what they did there. Uh, it's a shame they call it math, not maths, but I suppose if they called it maths, the pun wouldn't work. Um, <laughs> and she's written about quite a few of these different algorithms. And I think the, the better, a really good example of the difference between public policy is set by an algorithm and policy is set by more subjective individuals uh, is around the issue of giving loans and credit scores, that sort of thing. So obviously in the past, if you wanted a loan, you would have to go to your bank and speak to your bank manager for a loan and if you did that your bank manager would probably know probably a little bit about you probably grown up in the same area may well of course have his own subjective prejudices but would have at least an idea of you based on your personal circumstances of how trustworthy you'd be all that kind of stuff what seems to happen now is that there's credit ratings which are set by algorithms and set by formulas what Cathy O'Neill argues happens with these algorithms and it's a big feature of her book is that these algorithms essentially they entrench existing inequalities so if you consider say that as of 2015 which is when O'Neill's writing it uh, this book that white households held an average 10 times as much money and property as black and Hispanic households. This is true in America anyway, which is kind of the focus. But as we've kind of seen, I suppose, Steve, a lot of the stuff that happens in America and public policy tends to end up happening, uh, tends to be feed down into British public policy as well. And so therefore, by the 60s, white, um, whites are 11 times richer than African-Americans. Therefore, um, actually, you've got governments in New York City who've declared using credit checks disproportionately affects low-income applicants and applicants of colour. What also then happens is that because some companies have started using credit scores as a way of hiring 
and screening applicants for jobs as well. So then you have a double whammy. You're sort of, your credit scores affected and because your credit scores affected, you can't get a decent job. So it kind of compounds the problem. What you're kind of talking about there is kind of like in, in many ways, like it may not necessarily be an intentional impact of like the utilization of these algorithms, but what we've effectively got by utilizing these formulas um, in, in the way they are being used is the kind of like a more modern form of what in in the past was referred to as redlining. Now, redlining um, is primarily a US thing, I, I think, although it would not shock me to discover that in, in the UK, in Europe, there probably have been examples of this as well. Redlining basically is a term which I think came about in the 60s or so, which is used to describe the discriminatory practice of certain banks, uh, where they would basically just avoid investing in certain communities based solely on the demographics. Uh, i.e. if that was an area where black people lived, they would not loan money into those areas. Now, obviously, that is an example of a overtly racist um, and very, very overtly racist practice when it comes to making these sorts of decisions. But I'd argue that when you when using that, the, the examples you kind of talked about there regarding like credit ratings, what you've probably got is a, I suspect, an unintentionally racist policy decision that's that's happening happening here but because it's not in it, because of the, the racism in it isn't intentional and because it's hidden behind statistics data and there is a belief that somehow you know if, if you've got data and it's being done by a computer and you're attempting to do things scientifically that it's free from you know, bias, it's free from problems, it's free from any subjective values in there. People can just kind of, it, it, people tend to ignore it uh, a bit more and they just kind of go, well, well, that's just what the data says, so that must be the way of it. When in reality, when you're relying on formulas or algorithms to do anything, and I, and I do mean anything, if, we, if we'd wanted to, you know, create a formula to choose what to have for dinner every, every day of the week, you, this would still fall into the same kind of problems. There are subjective uh, judgments that go into the creation of algorithms because those algorithms are created by people. Now, again, it may not be an overt case of, oh, we are deliberately setting out to discriminate against people of colour or discriminate against this group or that group. But the reality is, if you unless you're kind of looking for the wider impacts of these things, you you may come, you may quite easily miss these things, because nine times out of ten in these instances, the people who are designing them are white men. The, uh, the, the the reality is that an awful lot of the tech industry that produces these algorithms is dominated by white straight men. So there are all kinds of points of view and areas that they aren't necessarily going to be taking into account when it comes to the development of these things, which in turn leads to um, unintended side effects, which have massive impacts on people's lives. That's a really good point. It's that especially algorithms that are designed based off past performance. Um, so I think there's one example as well, which is, uh, I think there's one, one company who tried to recruit and uh, fed in the CVs of people who'd already been offered jobs. And it turned out, obviously, they're all straight white men. So it was rejecting anyone with uh, different names, I think, and, and what have you, wasn't it? Yeah, so um, in, in effect, like the company that did this went in with the completely laudable aim of trying to eliminate discrimination from their hiring processes. Um, and they thought, okay, we'll create an algorithm and a piece of software which will uh, identify 
all of the best things that we are kind of looking for. But the problem is, in order to develop the algorithm, they had to feed it information. So they had to go, okay, the, the people that we've got working for us, those are the sorts of people that we want to hire, aren't they? Let's input their CVs and put them into the, in, in, as the base data set. And as you say, the problem you end up there is they were all white middle-class blokes. So all the, uh, all the, the data set that the algorithm was learning off of was basically saying only hire white middle-class blokes. Names did, I believe, come into it, but even just basic things like, hey, what university did you go to? Or you didn't go to these top ones where all of these guys went to, well, we're going to not put you through at all. So again, even when a company is looking to do, actively looking to do good, they can fall into these sorts of pit traps because technology, formulas, data, they are not silver, they are not magic bullets. They are tools that can be utilized and utilized very effectively, but they have their weaknesses and we need to actually be aware of those weaknesses before we actually start utilizing them more. And that's currently where we're at at the moment is we're not, I don't think we're, we're still at almost like a magical thinking stage where it's just like more technology is going to gonna solve this problem. And you know what? More technology may very well solve that problem. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that technology exists right now. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the assumptions we're making behind that technology are up to scratch. It's the fact that, as you say, humans are creating these algorithms and a lot of it doesn't take into account those structural factors, the structural racism, structural sexism. That means if you have an algorithm that essentially just replicates past performance is going to end up discriminating against certain groups and i think the other thing is and this is a big thing that comes out of o'neill's book is the need for algorithms to be transparent as well especially if it is something for say a credit rating or how an exam grade is is calculated for instance you need to have proper published information for that uh, so kathy o'neill also talks about predictive crime models, which of course just makes you think of Minority Report. But there's models like PredPol, they call it, I assume because they want to ruin our lives. And it doesn't focus on individuals, this model. So obviously there are other models that do, which are bad for a number of reasons. But what PredPol does is look at geography and try and look at what type of crime is committed and where is that crime committed. The logic is that if the police spend more time in high-risk areas of crime, looking for burglars and car thieves, that kind of stuff, then it's good for the community, which I suppose sort of makes sense. But apparently when the police forces set their pred poll, they've got a choice. So they can focus on part one crimes, as they're called, which are violent crimes like homicide, arson and assault. And, and these are usually almost certainly reported to the police as well. But they can also focus on what they call part two crimes. So these are, um, and again, these American terms, vagrancy, selling small quantities of drugs, and something it calls aggressive panhandling, which I'm guessing is something about going to the toilet. But essentially, most of those nuisance crimes will go unrecorded if a policeman wasn't there to see them. These sort of nuisance crimes also, they end up happening in more impoverished neighbourhoods by the sort of nature of the analysis. Now, if you include the part two offences in your algorithm and ask the police to go to those areas, then you end up in a sort of pernicious feedback loop, as O'Neill calls it, because what happens then is the police go to this area where there's lots of antisocial behaviour reported, they find a lot of antisocial behaviour, and they end up criminalising a load of poor people, essentially, uh, rather than, um, essentially because they're archaeologists who've gone finding what they're looking for. 
yeah, I mean, there was a, a thing uh, which kind of hit the media um, a couple of weeks back now, um, which was uh, down in Florida, because of course it happens in Florida. Um, somebody has literally kind of, a, or a county sheriff in Pasco um, has basically created a pre-crime division where in effect they generate lists of people it considers likely to break the law based on their arrest histories some decisions and are made by police analysts and various bits of intelligence that they have available which will mean things like oh hey they live in this neighborhood oh hey they happen to be people of color oh hey this neighborhood's poorer that kind of thing um, and then it deliberately sets they send out deputies to find and interrogate anyone whose name appears without probable cause or a search warrant or evidence that they, they send people out to try and find out if they've broken a crime uh, if they've broken the law and committed a crime which results in people being written up tickets for missing mailbox numbers and overgrown gra- overgrown grass explicitly in this instance the notion behind a lot of uh, this kind of pre-crime is to uh, and this is a quote from one of the deputies, make their lives miserable until they move or so. They're trying to actively kind of get rid of people from these areas because they consider them to be a uh, potentially a problem um, in the future when it comes to crime. Um, because they happen to meet all of these criteria that they just so happen to have uh, hit. And guess what or not? Guess what? An awful load of those people who are being hit by this, they ain't white. The, the notion of like pre-crime and things it's i think i feel like philip k dick when he wrote minority report has got an awful lot to answer for for kind of like this authoritarian uh hard man uh attitude that, that that seems to have developed with 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 crime in the 21st century because that notion of oh we we can use data or we can predict these things is, is it's just gone to people's heads in a way that's ridiculous you absolutely can use data to better police areas but it's not in the way it's being utilised at all, at least not in the US. That is not only terribly dystopian, not only is going to, as you say, just generate this self-fulfilling prophecy if you start looking for crime and then just report someone because they're missing a number of their house. That, that quote is very, I think, instructive because it is entirely predicated on the use of statistics. It's not about how we improve the country generally. It's literally, I'm a policeman in this particular district. If I think you're going to commit a crime, Steve, I'd rather you committed it in a district down the road because that doesn't affect my crime figures. And it's not about the good of society as a whole. Yeah, and especially in the US where sheriffs can be elected and and you've got all of that kind of ridiculousness where it's all going to be about that individual potentially massaging their their figures so that they can stand again and keep their job. It's governance for statistics rather than governance using statistics for a purpose. Weirdly, there's there's a... at work and, and, and i'm sure listeners are aware by now but i work in marketing and, and we produce a lot of content you know blog pieces all of that sort of stuff um for clients and um one of the 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 first kind of major lessons that i i kind of got hammered into me at one of my old jobs was when we're producing content is what is the purpose of this content what is it for you know because you can churn out a blog and put it on the website and no one's going to look at it really but it's there it looks good fine or you can produce something that's actually going to be meaningful and you can have a plan for it all of those sorts of different things and i feel like that notion of what is this for is what's kind of missing with an awful lot of either one the analysis or two the actual planning behind these 
uh, algorithms or attempts to utilize data more generally when it comes to governance and politics in particular. Because in essence, what you have is either people going, aha, this data shows we should do this. But then you go, yeah, but what's that data for? What are we doing this for? Um, you're missing out on the crucial point of what is the end point that we're trying to achieve or from the perspective of like, you know, commentary or, or holding to people account. We're not asking that question of, OK, what is this trying to achieve? What is this policy agenda meant to, meant to do? And how is this algorithm or how is this policy set up to do that and if you kind of look at it from that perspective you open up a whole new vein of like analysis and ability to hold people to account it's a move away from sort of technocratic and managerialism to i think i would say a little bit more ideological what is the point of it what are we trying to do what is the philosophy behind this policy i'm now depressed by that discussion so we should go on and talk about something a bit more light-hearted like QAnon. we've got um so that's sort of algorithm in terms of public policy they're also quite big on the internet that we have now. We'll put it in the show notes. I don't know if we'll necessarily spend a lot of time talking about it, but a really, really interesting blog that I found courtesy of Ian Leslie, who does a, is a writer for the New Statesman, does the ruffian sort of online uh, email. And this was about TikTok algorithms. So it's this idea that Chinese social media giants hadn't really broken the US because there's, there's a big culture barrier between China and America. And essentially the reason why TikTok has become as big and popular as it has is because its algorithm was very, very effective. And... Essentially, because tick, to, for, for a website like TikTok to work, it can't really be like Facebook. Like I suppose Facebook is where everyone plus your aunt is on there. And so if you post out, it's to as big a generic an audience as possible, which is why actually people don't use Facebook as much now because they want to be part in there. So rather than put something I find amusing on Facebook, I might put it on WhatsApp to a smaller group. And I don't have to worry about my mum commenting on it. Whereas actually what TikTok and the algorithm have done very well is to be able to, once you've watched a few videos, able to identify your interests really, really well to then show you a lot of content in various internet subgroups that you would really enjoy. TikTok's algorithm is, is particularly effective at uh, kind of like putting you into, I suppose almost pigeonholing you based on your interests in uh, into certain sections and showing you um, content by other people who are kind of like in that same part of the Venn diagram of their users. They seem to be able to do it in a much more effective way than a lot of the other kind of like social media platforms. I mean, I think we were discussing earlier uh, before we started recording about YouTube. So like if I go on my YouTube homepage, what tends to come up in my recommendations are a lot of the just the same channels that I already watch. But in theory, I've got lots of alerts set up already to tell me when they've got new videos. So you don't need to tell me about that all the time. Rather than get new things, I just get the same new, new channels that I might be interested in and therefore keeping me engaged. Um, I, I end up with the same stuff. And once I've watched all those new videos, I then go watch Netflix or, or, or something else, you know. Um, whilst TikTok has got done a much better job of seemingly identifying people's interests and just kind of putting them in those buckets and then showing what they're interested in to the fact to the point where like, I've got a TikTok account, um, I can, like without even thinking about it, just lose half an hour on it just because it's 30 seconds to, to a minute long videos and you're just going through them and you're just constantly staying engaged and you see an ad every now and again. And TikTok has managed to do something I feel like a lot of the other social medias haven't, which is somehow crack that classification 
um, of individuals as part of their algorithm, which in, in, in many ways is really interesting. But I think it also has kind of like one of it's one of those things where given in, in the US in particular, um, we've got all kinds of shenanigans happening where um, TikTok's probably being sold. It might be getting banned. It's technically it's being banned if for, for new downloads. And But it's possible that that algorithm in some capacity is going to be made available to another company, which means it can then be utilized elsewhere. Now, I don't think Facebook are actually in the bidding for this, but if a company like Facebook were to be able to acquire that technology, suddenly you have a very, very interesting dynamic emerging in terms of how that algorithm plays out in terms of democracy, because not everybody's on TikTok. An awful lot of people who vote are on Facebook. So you then have that kind of distinction of hey, if we're able to categorize people more effectively and kind of show them things, how do we manage that? Are we just creating echo chambers? Are we just feeding into people's biases already? Or is this, you know, just another thing that that, that, that happens and we can ignore it? The reality is we know that social media influences politics. We know that people are influenced by the, by the echo chambers and the people that they surround themselves with online. And so it is going to have an impact. Um, and so algorithms like TikToks and, uh, and Facebooks, as that one continues to advance and probably gets better at classifying people, are going to um, have an increasing impact on what we see online. They are, in effect, going to be acting as de facto gatekeepers of online content, which is interesting when you consider that the, one of the, the main things about um, the internet was that it was meant to make you know information freely available and all of those sorts of things which it does but you need to know where to go to look for it and that's I'm not even going to touch on google and search engines because that's a whole other topic but and we are getting news from social media now these days and to the extent where we're not even clicking on the links we're just retweeting them and sharing them on facebook rather than actually engaging with them if we're already doing that and we're increasing those echo chambers because we've been better classified because the machine learning's gotten better and the algorithm's gotten better. You know, there's, there's a massive kind of democratic conundrum there which needs to be resolved and looked at in some capacity. Um, and it may very well be that there is no simple answer or it may very well be that the answer is a very blunt instrument of you do not allow, for instance, political advertising on Facebook and you just say you cannot run those ads online. Um, on, on social media at least you can't do it during the short campaign you know or, or something like that um, so that you can at least control it a little bit but again I don't think anybody's really kind of looking at that properly some people are but it's certainly not a mainstream debate I feel so a few things on that I think one of them is the you mentioned the YouTube algorithm and that is interesting because one of the things that's in the blog on TikTok I mentioned earlier, I'll stick in the show notes, is that one of the reasons it has, the, the author of that blog finds faults with the YouTube algorithm is because actually a lot of video designers have worked out how to game that algorithm. So one of the reasons why YouTube video lengths have gone longer is because it used to be a lot, I think, Again, speaking slightly of ignorance here, but a lot of it was on like, the watch length and how the proportion of video you've actually seen. And people have sort of found their way around that. Google, when they bought uh, YouTube, changed the way the algorithm functioned. Um, you're right, um, watch time is a massive element of that because, that, uh, because it is essentially um, how long you're spending on the website. And obviously they want you spending as much time on the website as possible, so you're viewing more ads. Um, which meant that the sort of content that they favored 
in the algorithm changed massively. Back in the day, um, you could find all kinds of like animated shorts and, and things on YouTube, which were some of the most popular pieces of content. They were, you know, one, two minute things because animation is a lengthy process to put into place. These were being done by, you know, independent artists, uh, people who are doing this in their free time, you know, uh, up and comers, all of those sorts of things. And um, uh, yeah, you could, you could get viral and get famous uh, online through, through doing that. These days you can't because those are only those videos are only two to three minutes long and Google likes 15 to 20 to 30 to hour long plus videos because as I said at the end of the day, it's all about the ad revenue for them. There are also all kinds of elements like when you are looking uh, on, on YouTube and you have the recommended videos on the side, people have realized effectively that graphic design and the design of the imagery on the, on the thumbnails influences what people click. Um, in some ways, it's quite basic. It's just like, you know, bright colours get noticed more. Therefore, people start using bright colours. And it's interesting that the, the choices, particularly Facebook has made, um, and YouTube too, but Facebook in particular, seem to have led the spread of QAnon. Steve, you are my go-to man for definitions. Do you want to explain to the uninitiated who QAnon are? A bunch of conspiracy theorists uh, who have formed online communities who are convinced that there is a there's a massive conspiracy essentially that every kind of major leading public figure, celebrity, or all of the Democrats, a few kind of moderate Republicans are all paedophiles and they're all involved in this sort of stuff. And like listeners might have come across, um, I think it was called Pizzagate in, in the 2016 election which was the notion that there was a pizza place in New York, which the Clintons were involved with. And that was where, like, you know, they were going to have sex with children and the paedophile rings, all of that kind of absolutely out there kind of nonsense conspiracy stuff. QAnon, despite being completely out there, seems to be gaining traction online. I think we're in a position now where, for the f where we've got at least one candidate in the Republican Party who's standing, I want to say for Congress, I think. I'm pretty sure she's standing for a House seat. Who openly identifies as being a part of QAnon, actively being a part of that community and is being celebrated within that community. You know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff around Trump probably being involved with it because there's overlap between the sort of people who have been involved in this are the sort of people who are also birthers back under Obama, which is part of the thing, one of uh, kind of like Donald Trump's big things back in the day. Yeah, essentially, it, QAnon is just a, a new community of largely far-right conspiracy theorists who are actively trying to organise to um, generate political influence and power. It's a kind of a nightmarish scenario in a lot of ways, and, and they are making progress, at least in, in, in the US. It's starting to be kind of brought over into here in the UK a little bit as well. And you can you can see some like similar kind of things starting to come about. Like I was reading one thing the, the other day, which was talking about how there were theories going around that Keir Starmer was one of the people responsible for not prosecuting Jimmy Savile, which is just out there. But, you know, it, it, it's, it's a new thing built off of the same kind of building box of far-right extremism that we've seen, for quite some, uh, we've seen for quite some time. As you said, like an awful lot of their growth seems to be coming from the fact that they are able to, to traffic off of the algorithms on various websites and social media websites to kind of grow their reach yeah so one of the big one of the decisions that facebook took which 
I th- seems to have led to a massive spike for QAnon is that they were pushing in their Facebook and their algorithm and what they showed people um, groups they would be discussion groups they'd be interested in rather than posts from various pages and it this decision I think it, this decision did make quite a bit of news a few years ago because I think it was more then framed as essentially I think Facebook killing traditional media story because I think posts from probably ourselves as a podcast or from actual proper news websites um, wouldn't quite be promoted as much in people's feet and that was seen as quite significant but what also seems to have happened is that people were being directed to these forums where as you say these kind of conspiracy theories were being discussed and the Guardian they did an investigation into a lot of the the QAnon stuff and in fact their reporter wasn't didn't he didn't go out looking for it what happens is uh, according to the Guardian story that the reporter joined some pro-Trump anti-vaccine anti-lockdown Facebook groups and then the Facebook algorithm recommended him this QAnon group um, is what seems to have happened and so it's that in particular the the way in which the YouTube algorithm works where there's um, a podcast I think called Rabbit Hole which was talked about on Pod Save America which I haven't listened to I have to say but what that is about is about the YouTube video algorithm essentially pointing people to more and more and more disturbing or uh, out there videos until mm-hmm. yeah eventually you get to the the QAnon mad stuff um, at which point it's too late. Interestingly, when you're talking about that as well, there's um, that kind of works in a number of other areas on YouTube as well, where there was um, a thing a few years back about problematic um, videos on there for children, where um, in effect you could pop on episodes of Peppa Pig uh, on YouTube and uh, after a while it would just autoplay you down the rabbit hole of getting into things that look like Peppa Pig but then are not Peppa Pig because Peppa Pig goes psychopathic and starts murdering her family. So there's, there's always been an element of kind of like that problem in YouTube's algorithm. I think uh, over the past few years, because we've seen this, this global increase of the far right, um, it's just been putting more focus uh, in, in kind of that political sphere, but certainly from a kind of like a an advertising or kind of like marketing kind of point of view. This is like, well, as I mentioned with the stuff with the kids, kids videos and things like that, that's something that that's been discussed for, for years now. And I think it's, it's just a uh, politics has kind of caught up. I feel unlike somebody else has learned about this, 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 this almost like this little gap and people are starting to kind of fill in the hole. It's trying to get legislators who probably are not of the internet age maybe it's fair to say and you've got lots of rules about what children can see on television in the uk but then if most children are watching netflix and youtube rather than engaging on television it's just taking public policy a while to catch up with that i think so our champagners should have a special episode only for people who give us a little bit of extra money to help put this podcast out uh, in which Steve and I try and work out what the government is trying to do on Brexit and ends with me having a nervous breakdown. If you Mm -hmm. want to catch that episode, where do you have to go, Steve? 
Uh, you have to head over to www.patreon.com slash not enough champagne uh, where you can throw us a few quid every month to gain access to unique content like these sorts of episodes as well as some blog posts. Uh, we've done some kind of like uh, discussions with some of our regular guests and talking heads on the show as well. Come on over and check it out and uh, hope to see you there. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at nochampagnepod. James Cram, designer logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune for Good Times. My Twitter handle is at paperbackwriter. Uh, mine is at acoustic radical. Happy plotting. Mm-hmm.